A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now, you've probably never heard of the IG Nobel Prize, but essentially it's an award given to people who are notorious for the research that they've conducted in a relatively negative connotation. Anyway, one year it was awarded to a relatively famous Australian scientist for identifying the frequency of different colors of naval fluff. Yep. So that's essentially fluff that you might pull out of your belly button and looking at the different colors that people had. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, potentially in osteoarthritis clinical trials, if we don't measure the right outcomes, we're not going to get something that's of relevance to patient outcomes, clinicians, and potentially contributes to research waste. So today we're talking about a really important topic of core outcome sets in osteoarthritis clinical trials. And so these are important for lots of different reasons so that it you know, facilitates us being allowed to compare across trials. And so it's important that they have some consistency. The outcomes that are measured in trials ideally should be patient-centered. So you know, if it's not relevant to patients, we shouldn't be measuring them. And it should be relevant to clinicians as well. Ideally, it would facilitate approval of the product that you're actually testing for regulators and hopefully reduce some of what we call heterogeneity in trials, or basically the diversity of outcomes makes it very different to compare them. So these core outcome sets are incredibly important to us to facilitate comparing trials, to advance knowledge. The challenge is at the moment, despite us having core outcome sets for clinical trials in osteoarthritis, they're not frequently used. And so today we're talking about this really important topic to educate the community and hopefully increase awareness of their importance and facilitate their increased use. And we're joined by Professor Toby Smith from Warwick Clinical Trials Unit at the University of Warwick to talk about this area, which he's been really instrumental in driving. Hello, Toby. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks, David. 
Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you here and really looking forward to what is a really important topic, both for the community out there that have osteoarthritis, but also the, the research community. But before we get into the main content, just wondering if you can share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'm an academic physiotherapist. So I work both clinically and academically in a university. So my day-to-day job is in the university. So typically, as with many um, people that work at universities, such as today, I'm often get correspondence and meetings from people across the world. So I tend to start early. So I can try to catch people if they're in Australia or if they're in America or if they're in Europe or if they're early birds or if they get up a bit later as well. So so I, I'm, a, I'm an early bird. I generally start work early. And then my academic day really dictates on what I've got so I'd love to say it's really exciting but there's lots of admin and there's lots of paperwork and um, but there's also lots of meeting different people and so the big parts of my job which are around designing and running clinical trials it's really about meeting people um, and finding out what problems are both with the research projects but also about some how we might overcome that and actually I think probably one of the, the key parts of my job and the exciting parts of my job are, are meeting people that have diseases and problems and trying to solve those problems both in the, in the short term about research and clinical trials, but also in the long term about improving their lives as well. So, so that's a key part of, of, I suppose, what I do throughout the day in my university role. But in my academic role, and this is still really important to me, so I, so I work one weekend in four, so it wasn't a huge clinical role, but it, it's hugely important to me for a number of reasons. Um, one is that it keeps me grounded. Um, so it makes me realise why I'm doing my, my university role, because I, I see day to day in that clinical um, position, the problems that people face, but also the solutions that we can offer them as well um, in improving their health and well-being as well. But secondly, if I'm honest as a physiotherapist, I just love meeting people and helping people. So it feels like I'm actually doing something good in my life. So I really enjoy that part as well. So I, I feel like I've got the best of both worlds in my normal day-to-day role. So yeah, that's probably me in a nutshell. Wonderful. I mean, it sounds sounds very rich and diverse, and I'm sure provides a lot of fulfillment for you. Toby, when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? Um, that's a great question. And there isn't a huge amount of time. But what I do enjoy doing is spending time with my family. So I've got two kids and, and they occupy my time. So I am a family taxi. So I ferry them across the city to do very sporting and social things. I like to run. I like to try to keep fit. So I'm an aging runner. So I'm trying to maintain some degree of fitness as I as I age. But equally, we enjoy just watching the football, um, enjoying films, going out to eat, normal things really. So I'd love to say I'm one of those people who's really exciting that does you know crazy sporting things. But uh, I'm fairly boring. But I enjoy being boring when I'm not working. So yeah, that's what I we know. do. It sounds fascinating. I'm sure you're <laughs> sure you're having a lovely time. Yeah. The uh, when you say football, what what code are you referring to? Ah, that's soccer. In so yeah, so so I enjoy I enjoy watching rugby, but we're we're big soccer people. So we live in Norwich. So Norwich City is one of those what we call a yo-yo team. So they they dip in and out of the um, the Premier League or the top league. But um, I enjoy watching that. But um, my um, other half says, basically, if there's any sport on TV, Toby will sit and watch it. Darts included? 
Well, not quite that, but in, in England, we, we get to watch darts once a year on main TV. So it's Christmas time. So for me, when we watch darts, it's usually around Christmas and New Year. Um, but there is something fascinating. I probably would watch a couple of you know, games of darts, but um, it, it's, it's not. Is that, is that your thing, David? I never knew this. No, no, I have no interest in darts at all, but I, I'm, I'm just fascinated with some of the pursuits of people in the UK as far as sport's concerned. Um, anyway, that's where we're digressing. Toby, if you had to di describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Yeah, so whenever people ask me this, I always think, well, what would I say? But then also what would other people say? And I hope they're the same sort of thing. But I'm fairly pragmatic and laid back, both socially and at work. So I'm very happy I'm very happy to hear different viewpoints. And, and so, yeah, so relaxed, pragmatic, but I'm also motivated um, and hardworking and fairly diligent. So I think that, that combination of looking at, across the whole scene and, and being able to see different viewpoints, but also actually knowing when to make a decision um, and, and hopefully for the greater good is, is probably what I try to do. So I'd, I'd say that and hopefully my kids would agree with me as well, which are the biggest judge for me. So there we are. Well, they're all superb qualities. Um, the kids are young, so they probably agree with you at this point in time, but let them grow into teenage years and young adults, and I'm sure they won't. But anyway, <laughs> the topic for today is really about the core outcome work that you have been leading in this space and comes on the back of an editorial that you've just written for osteoarthritis and cartilage and a paper there, but also on the back of the work that you did for OMRACT, and I might get you to explain what that is in a second, in 2019 with the mm -hmm. core outcome set and looking at the uptake of that in years prior to there. All of the links for those manuscripts I just mentioned, I'll include in the show notes. But before we get into the, I guess, main content of those uh, papers themselves, can you just explain what is a core outcome set? Yeah, very happily to do so. Um, so in essence, a core outcome set is an agreed list of outcome measures or sorry, an agreed list of areas that um, researchers should measure in every research project, particularly clinical trial. I think the two key elements really in that statement are the word agreed and outcome areas of measurement. So in essence, it's a list so that a researcher could look at the list and know exactly what they have to measure in a clinical trial for a, a given population or a given group of people. So if we take people with osteoarthritis, um, any researcher should look at the list and go, okay, well, if I'm designing a clinical trial or a research project, I have to have at least those areas measured. Now I can measure some more, but I have to do that. And, and that's really, really important because it means that it's not just at the discretion of the researcher, but it's been agreed that it should be there as well. And one key part of that agreement is it's not just my view as the researcher of what should be measured and the areas that should be measured, but patients and consumers have also had a say in that. Researchers in other areas and in other countries have also had a say in that. 
commissioners who commission a, a clinical pathway or a treatment have had a say in that. And I think as well as industry and other, other people have a vested interest in helping people with osteoarthritis in this instance. So that, that agreed list is really, really important because it means there's a bit more thinking and a bit more thought about what's going to be the most important areas to assess and the valuable areas to assess. So that, in essence, is what a core outcome set is. It is quite literally a list of those areas or, or ways to measure that area yeah. for a trial. Wonderful. What work have you done in this space in osteoarthritis? So I was fortunate to, to work with a larger group on behalf of OMRAC and Aussie, which are two organisations which have really provided... Just before you go on, Tabby, what, what do those acronyms mean that you just mentioned? Yes. So OMRAC is Outcome Measures in Rheumatology. So OMRAC, first of all, is an organisation which provides some information and really guiding principles about how we conduct a good outcome set. So in OMRAC, the rheumatology organization, that was really founded around areas of bone joint and muscle disease, so rheumatology disease. So they've really started in the, the late 80s, early 90s, really providing methodological or ways of doing this guidance. Um, so, so that's OMRAC. And then AUSI is the International Osteoarthritis and Special Interest Group, in essence. So again, they provide guidance, formula and a network for people interested in osteoarthritis research and care, um, in essence. Um, so for the osteoarthritis hip and knee core outcome set, which I was part of the group that led and, and developed that, um, we did an update of the 1997 version of that. And both the OMRAC and the Aussie organisations were really helpful in, in providing not only the methodological, the ways that we do it guidance from the OMRAC perspective, but the Aussie perspective gave that international network. So we developed the core outcome set for that, for the hip and knee osteoarthritis groups. So, yeah. so just explain a little bit what, what that activity involved for you in terms of yeah. coming up with the consensus activity around the core outcome set. And if you don't mind, the parallel paper that you published related to how frequently they're used. Yeah, absolutely. So in essence, for the hip and knee osteoarthritis core outcome set, there was three key areas of work that we had to do to work out what the outcome set should be. So the first area was to work out what measures had been used by people and what areas have been measured in other clinical trials. So we looked at all the research papers in a systematic review, which is where we gather all the papers up and all the evidence up. And we looked at each of the academic papers and worked out what areas and what measurements they'd taken in their clinical trials or their research projects. So that gave us an idea of the frequency of what's being done. And equally, it therefore told us what hadn't been done over the years. So that was the, the first part. The second part, in essence, is then we took that information and we asked the whole clinical community across the world whether these are the important areas or if there's something missing. So it's what we call a Delphi exercise, where we, in essence, take a survey and we send that list off across the world online and people 
prioritize what's important and what isn't important and any areas that are missing. And that priority of, um, exercise through that Delphi, the results were then taken to a big meeting that was in Australia. And in this OMRAC meeting, which was held in Australia, people then had an opportunity to look at the results from the first two pieces of work that we've done. And we made an agreement about what the most important key areas were in relation to hip and knee osteoarthritis. And the key aspects, particularly for the Delphi exercise and the consensus meeting, was the breadth of view. So in accordance with OMRAC, but also in good principles, we spread the message out. We got the views of people across the world but equally, we got the views of all the potential people that could be important to have a view. So clinicians, so rheumatologists, orthopedic surgeons, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, nurses, every healthcare professional that a patient of osteoarthritis will come across and meet. Consumers themselves, patients with their own experiences of living with osteoarthritis, they're the ones that know what are the important areas because they live with the, this condition day to day. So the views of those people was critically important. Industry partners, so people that drug company and, and implant company makers, regulatory authorities, researchers themselves. So really anybody that had a view had that, that contribution to make. So at the end of that, we then had a list of, of areas that need to be assessed. So that included pain, that included physical function, that included, included health-related quality of life, complications, adverse events, and change in their symptoms as well. So we listed those areas that had to be, therefore, recommended by all the people across the world about what the most important areas are. Now, a second key element was working out, okay, well, what's happened? So Nick Bellamy's group and, and, and the previous OMRAC Wolsey group, our predecessor, had done a similar exercise to establish the first ever agreed list in 1998 and 1997. So I wanted to find out, well, actually, what's happened over time? You know, has, has the work from the previous group, has that changed practice? Has that influenced what list should be done? Because what I was really, really hoping was that, okay, well, that's great. There's, there's interest here and people have been doing this. And what we're going to do is we're going to refine it and work out, is it still user-friendly and fit for purpose in this next few decades? But lo and behold, unfortunately, when we looked at all the outcome measures that, we'd, that had been previously used in the last 20 years, when we did that systematic review in the first work package, actually the uptake wasn't great. So we found that there was between 30 and 40% of papers that were meeting all that list, but there was nearly 60, 70% of papers that weren't meeting all that. And that's a real problem. And it's a real, it's a challenge because if we try to look at other areas like rheumatoid arthritis, they'd be really good at doing it and I wanted to know well why what what's missing what is the missing piece here and how can we try to improve this but that piece of work was really important to tell us okay there's a line in the sand here what can we do well what what's the position now and what can we do going forwards so yeah that's in essence what we did for the group yeah tremendous tremendous description of a very complex area of work now from the perspective of the um the core outcome set just before we get into talking about, you know, problems with uptake, 
Why why is it important to have a core outcome set? Yeah, so this is one of the topics that I spend most of my time talking about, really for the for the first reason. So there's two key areas in my mind. Firstly, I think it, um, it allows us the, the ability to um, standardise to some degree what is measured. So if every researcher and every clinical trial followed the core outcome set, then we would know that we could pick up 10 different papers and they'd all be looking at the same sort of areas or the same sort of ways of measuring. And that's really important for us as researchers and clinicians because it allows us to take the information from those papers and to bring them all together. So what's known as a systematic review and a meta-analysis. So if I have designed a clinical trial for people with osteoarthritis today, and I want to look at a new treatment, and I want to compare that to normal care, I will design my trial to be able to answer one question with real confidence. So what we call a primary outcome measure. So um, for many of my osteoarthritis trials, that might be pain. So I can say categorically my new treatment is better or the same um, than usual care. But I also collect some other measures as well. So again, with the core outcome set, we have five measures. So I'll be able to answer it for one because that's how I've designed my trial. But I'll have some data, really important data, for four others. But I won't actually have a lot of, I won't have maybe enough data to be able to really concretely answer that. But if my colleague who works in Australia, my colleague that works in South Africa, my colleague that works in England and or, or wherever they are, also uses the same outcome measures, then I can take their results, meeting the assumption that the designs are very, very similar, and I can bring them all together in a, in a meta-analysis, which is like a, a, a statistical program where we can, we can analyze the data. But rather than just having my clinical trial of 200 people, that wasn't enough to really answer those other measures. I can use the data from my colleagues, bring that together, and now all of a sudden I've got lots more data so I can really answer my questions. And even for my primary outcome measure, my most important outcome measure on pain, I've got more precision or accuracy of whether my new treatment really benefits or is no different whatsoever. So I can tell my patient, this is good, I've got confidence here. So that's the, the key really most important um, in many respects. The second thing is that agreed element. So rather than me making a judgment call about what I think the most important outcome measures are, my clinical colleagues, but also my patients from wherever they are across the world, consumers and patients have had an informed decision about recommending what Toby should be using in his clinical trials. And so that gives me more confidence as a researcher that actually I'm using the right areas and that's going to be valuable, not just for the clinical community, the healthcare professionals, but for patients. So I think they're, in my mind, the two really, really important reasons why we should be adopting and we should be using core outcome sets. And that's why um, I get somewhat miffed and upset when they're not used, because I just think they're such an opportunity and, and, and value for research to use. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a fantastic and very complex area. I mean, obviously, at least as you were talking, I think that uh, aspect where you really take into account patients' perspectives and this being an outcome that's important to patients as well as clinicians is is critical here. 
You mentioned that in rheumatoid arthritis, for example, they have much better up, uptake of their poor outcome set, and presumably that has benefits for them. But what what's the consequence for us? I mean, you mentioned about the meta-analysis um, and the, the lack of potential harmonization or standardization there, but are there other consequences that we need to be aware of in not using a core outcome set? I suppose the most frequently um, cited consequence is this fear of research wastage. So that people will be doing clinical trials and research projects that actually have very limited value so that they can't be brought together in a meta-analysis or they aren't really answering the most important questions. And I think research wastage is a very hot topic in research uh, and academic circles, but also for, for funders and clinicians for two reasons, really. One is when we're doing a clinical trial, that's a big ask for patients. Patients are altruistic. They're doing it because they want to help and they want to know not only for themselves, but more importantly, for other people in their situation, how to, to best be managed and be cared for. So actually being part of a clinical trial is no mean feat. Um, so if we're doing trials that aren't fit for purpose, then that's wasting patients' time, but also wasting the healthcare professional's time when they could be doing clinical trials that are maybe of a little bit more value. But secondly, clinical trials are really expensive. So research funders who, for the research that I do is actually ultimately the taxpayer in the UK, um, it, it, it's, it's using a lot of money. And if, if clinical trials are designed and they're not actually doing the job that they could be doing, then that's a real waste of money. So probably the most frequently cited reason is, is it a waste of, of time and money? And, and ultimately, if I'm being honest, is it ethical? Is it actually ethical to be doing research that a few people think it's really, really important, but fundamentally it's not going to help take forwards our knowledge and understanding of how we can better help people. Um, so they're probably the big reasons. So I'm convinced, but obviously there's a community of people out there, and I think you suggested that potentially it's about 60 to 70% of people that's doing research that haven't taken up the core outcome set completely. How might we increase their adoption? Yeah, you're asking the tricky questions, David. I wish I had the answer to this one, but um, I think the, the answer probably lays in our colleagues in rheumatoid arthritis, actually. So that's a good example about some strategies that have really helped them increase their uptake. So as I said earlier, I think the uptake for rheumatoid arthritis is anywhere between 80 and 90%, so it's much higher. The two key reasons I think why they've had a sea change in, in adoption is, I'm afraid, money probably talks. So firstly, the United States and European um, regulatory authorities that authorise drugs um, have made it mandated or requested that, that every clinical trial that they look at has to follow the core outcome set. So all drug trials, if they are to be seen as being viable to inform whether a drug is permitted or not within, a, within an area or a state or a country, has to follow this. So all of a sudden, every drug trial had to follow it. Otherwise, it wasn't going to be looked at. So I think if organisations such as regulatory authorities or the NICE committee in this country authorises and makes recommendations of treatments and whether clinicians can use treatments or not, if they force the hand of researchers that actually, if, if your research is going to be taken seriously, you have to do it, overnight there will be a radical change. So I think that that's probably the biggest thing. 
And then secondly, it's knowledge. So whilst I've managed to convince you, and, and I suspect you knew anyway before, if I'm honest, there's lots of people that know a bit about them, but don't know as much as they probably could do about core outcome sets. Um, and I think it's just increasing understanding of their value and, and their existence. Um, so funders have started um, making it critically, explicitly clear about the position they have. So if a, a large research trial in the UK, for instance, has to get funded and wants to get funded, then in the blue, in the small print, it says very clearly, well, actually, you need to tell us what the core outcome set is in your area and if it's been followed. And if you haven't followed it, you've got to give us a jolly good reason why you're not following it. So I think understanding and awareness is improving and the funders are going some way, but not exclusively and exhaustively in this to, to make it clear that actually researchers have to be aware of it. So, so it is improving. And what I hope is that either myself or colleagues in 20 years time do the same exercise. And I really hope for osteoarthritis, we're in a much stronger position. I've got a feeling we will be, but it would be great to be able to have more universal coverage of this. Yeah. Oh, well, you just need to keep uh, banging on about it. And hopefully your passion will convince everybody around the world who's engaged in osteoarthritis to, to do so. Now, Toby, we'll obviously include the links to the manuscripts that you've uh, developed and, and also the recent ones that have come out in osteoarthritis and cartilage in the show notes. But are, are there any other resources uh, that you'd like people to be directed towards? Yeah, I, I think a, a good point of call would be that OMARAC website. So if people are interested in want to know a bit more about core outcome sets, and particularly around bone joint and muscle health and, and rheumatoid and osteoarthritis, then I would I'd well recommend looking at the OMRAC website. Um, I think it's a great source of resources, but also you can see the involvement really clearly about consumers and patients, as well as the other stakeholders in it. And I think that's a really helpful port of call to see what the framework is and the methods and what we're trying to achieve here. Um, I, hopefully I've sold the concept, but that website will also sell it more. So, yeah. Superb. All right. So we're just going to move on a couple of closing questions, but why do you do what you do? What's your primary motivation? Yeah, um, it's making a difference. So I remember a colleague, Philip Conaghan, who's a professor of rheumatology in Leeds, said to me, at the end of the day, what he hopes is when he retires, whenever that will be, probably in the in the far distant future um, he wants to be able to say I've made a difference and I, that's always stuck with me and I completely agree with him I want to whenever I have the pleasure of retiring I want to look back on my career and say I made a difference to people and to patients and I think that's the biggest thing that I do my whole career is designed about trying to help people so that's not my biggest motivation um, can I improve the care and the well-being of people with bone joint and muscle disease and if I can do that or at least contribute to do that then that's my drive that's my motivation yeah. oh well you undoubtedly are I just hope you you remain very very focused on that core principle as you, as you move forward and then and you don't lose sight of it. But in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people that have osteoarthritis? Um, yeah, it's probably nothing new, but I would the one thing I would say to people with osteoarthritis it is always seek help and look out. Uh, the, the, 
there's lots of people that are really good at doing that and there's lots of people that will say look actually I'm, I'm uncomfortable I can't do the things I want to do and I, I want some help with managing my symptoms um, and my, my problem but there's also a lot of people that don't there's a lot of people with osteoarthritis who they ex- they just are happy to accept that they're in pain and disability and they can't do the things they, they want to do because it they feel it's just it's part of aging and it's, this is just that this is what happened to my friends and my family and it isn't the case now there's so much that can be offered to help people so for those people that want to seek help or don't know how to seek help just seek help because people are there to help you and are interested to improve your your health and what you can do and and all the goals that you want to achieve in life so that's probably my only thing and hopefully everybody knows that but some people might just need a bit of a nudge to to do that um so that's probably the one thing i'd recommend yeah. oh well hopefully they've heard your empowering message and they get proactive about their care and go out and seek the help that they need Toby, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us. Really appreciate the insights and the valuable work you've done. And hopefully you maintain that core principle that you mentioned a moment ago about making a difference. That's great. Thank you for the opportunity, David. Really enjoyed it. That's great. So hopefully you know a little bit more now about the core outcomes that are used in osteoarthritis clinical trials, or at least what should be used. Unfortunately, they're not at the moment. And that creates big problems for comparing interventions, looking at the relevance this has to patients, to clinicians, and obviously reduces the likelihood that regulators may well approve this. It's an area that we desperately need to improve upon in osteoarthritis uh, to improve the likelihood that we can compare trials longer term. Um, But at the present time, we're obviously sorely lacking, particularly compared at least to rheumatoid arthritis that Toby described a moment ago. So this is an area that obviously we hope to improve. There are some levers that could be pulled that could facilitate the uptake of the core outcome set. And we hope that they do get pulled in the relatively near future to see improvements in clinical trials and outcomes and comparing effectiveness across different interventions. Thank you again so much for taking time out of your busy lives to listen to the Joint Action Podcast. We really appreciate your support. If you have an opportunity to send us some feedback, some questions, please do so. But between now and when we next have an opportunity to interact with you, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.